Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. My name is Michael Cohen, and thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, I encourage you to leave us a rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment if you have some thoughts on the program or anything you might be interested in hearing down the road. For those of you who have done so already, I really appreciate it. I read all of the comments and check the reviews so I can get some feedback from you guys. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Michael underscore Cohen 13. That's at Michael underscore Cohen 13. Feel free to share some thoughts there if you have any comments about the show. Today's episode should be a pretty good one. I got some positive feedback from you guys last week about dipping into the world of basketball, and a lot of you kind of said, as long as the guest is really interesting and has some some cool stories to tell, we're all for it regardless of sport. So I appreciate you guys being open, and I'm going to kind of explore those boundaries a little bit and see who I can find for interesting guests, and this week is no exception. Um, this was a, a really cool example for me, of kind of that mantra that I was taught as a young reporter, which is if you make that extra phone call, if you send that extra email, good things are generally going to happen. Our guest today is somebody who I had never spoken to in my entire life prior to recording this podcast, but it was somebody whose career interested me for a lot of different reasons, and you'll, you'll hear a lot of those as the show continues. But it's Lindsey Hunter, and Lindsey Hunter played in the NBA for a long time, drafted in the lottery, 10th overall by the Detroit Pistons in 1993, and then he finishes his career in 2010 as a member of the Chicago Bulls. In between, he spends the majority of his career with the Pistons, but goes on and wins a championship with the Lakers in the third ring of the Kobe Shaq three-peat. He also wins a ring with the Detroit Pistons on that Chauncey Billups, Rasheed Wallace, Richard Hamilton, Ben Wallace team. Uh, He's on the floor for the Malice at the Palace, that ridiculous, iconic game between the Pacers and the Detroit Pistons in Detroit. He's present for Derrick Rose winning Rookie of the Year and is tasked with mentoring Rose during that rookie season in 2008. So he's just on the floor and around and playing with and playing against so many fascinating figures from the late 90s into the 2000s. Some really insightful information there. And then he transitions into coaching and has even more interesting experiences to talk about. He first starts out as a scout and in the front office with the Phoenix Suns, then becomes an assistant coach with the Suns. He even spends a little bit of time as an interim head coach there in Phoenix. Then he's a head, excuse me, then he's an assistant coach with the Golden State Warriors in 2013 and 2014, serving under Mark Jackson. So he had a chance to coach Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, David Lee, Andre Iguodala the year before. They started their three titles in four-year run. And so he was kind of there for the building blocks and the starting point of what became one of the the great modern dynasties in, in NBA history. And then he moved into the college level, which is something he always wanted to do. Having come himself from a historically black college, he had an opportunity to be an assistant first at the university at Buffalo. But recently, as of 2019, he became the head coach at an HBCU, Mississippi Valley State University. And so he took over that program finished his first season uh, this past March when coronavirus and the pandemic took over the United States and the world and, and shut down sports everywhere. And and now what he's doing is, is trying to run a program and trying to run a program of guys that is 
overwhelmingly African-American in a conference that's overwhelmingly African-American in a part of the country that is overwhelmingly African-American. And so we start the podcast with a, a really insightful and, you know, on his part, a very deep and, and very analytical and very uh, well-informed and, and well-thought-out discussion of, of race and what it's like to lead young African-American men in this particular time and to have young African-American children and try and explain to them everything that's happening with all of these protests and demonstrations and riots and police brutality and violence and, and extrajudicial killings and things that have gone on. It's a, it's a frightening time for a lot of people. And, and so Lindsay was extremely um, well-versed and well-spoken in sharing his thoughts there. So there's a lot of basketball and fascinating topics in this podcast as well, but we start with a little bit of current events, diving into everything that is going on right now in the world. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I thought it was a, an enlightening conversation. Lindsay was incredibly generous with his time, incredibly generous with his stories, and, uh, and like I said, if you make that extra call or send that extra email, as I did to Mississippi Valley State trying to set this up, uh, it turned out to be, I think, maybe, maybe the most interesting podcast we've had so far. So without further ado, here is a conversation with Lindsay Hunter. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for taking some time to join me. I, I really do appreciate it. I know this is a challenging time for, for everybody and, and coaches across the country and across the world in all sports are trying to adjust to everything that's happening right now. So for somebody like you who was taking over a new program and had just finished up or was about to finish up your first season, what has this been like trying to grow a program in unprecedented times? Well, you know, of course it's been difficult, like you said, for everybody. Um, the thing that um, we've been trying to do as a, as a staff and me as a coach is um, just make sure everybody understands that you know, uh, we're still here for them and, and just answer any questions that, that, you know, players may have or recruits may have and, and try to comfort them as much as possible. That's basically all you can do at this time, you know, and just show support for them, um, explain to them what's going on, you know, try to make sure guys understand the history of our country and what's going on right now. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's what we've been doing. Um, trying to stay active in everybody's, uh, you know, uh, life and, and, and just comfort them. I did want to ask you about that as well with, with some of the, you know, terrible and, and unfortunate and just brutal, unnecessary acts that have gone on lately. What is it like to, to sort of be somebody who is not only a coach, but a, men, a mentor for young men and somebody who brings up, you know, people through the community and, and obviously coaching in a, in a conference where there are primarily African-American athletes? I mean, how frustrating and challenging and, and all different range of emotions have you and, and your staff and your players been feeling the last, you know, five, six days? Well, you know, me growing up in Mississippi, born and raised, I you know, I have a totally different perspective about a lot of things, um, you know, and, and I, I try to share those ex my experiences and my thoughts and my perception with my guys and as well as other people. Um, you know, I've I, I raised three young men in my household, three African-American young men who have to walk, you know, uh, through this world and grow through this world. And, um, you know, and it's just different being a, a, a young black man in this world, you know, even through my time growing up. So, and, and, you know, we've always had the, the, the fears. We've always had the, the negative connotations about, you know, uh, police officers, unfortunately, in our communities. That's what 
you know, that, that seems to be the way that we were, you know, brought up. And, and um, you just knew it was a matter of time before these things come to a head. And unfortunately, you get some of the sidebars, some of the things, the unnecessary things that happen. Um, but if you look at our, our, you look at our country's history, you know, things like this have always happened. It's not, you know, this is not something new. Um, looting is not something new. Um, there'll be opportunists, opportunistic people in every situation, you know, so you can't let the, 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 the few things that are negative that are happening, take away from what really needs to come away from this. And, and that's that, you know, we all want equality. We all want to be treated fairly. We don't want to worry about my son driving, you know, somewhere and not coming home ever. Um, those are the things that, that, you know, that I, I stress and I talk about it and I'm passionate about it and I've experienced. You know, I'm, I'm glad you phrased the beginning of your answer the way that you did. You talked about how your specific background influenced some of the experiences you had growing up. And, and it's the same for all of us. We don't choose necessarily where we grew up. And I happened to grow up in Connecticut in a small town that was overwhelmingly, almost exclusively white people. And so when I went to college at Syracuse University, that was the first time that I was ever really exposed to a significant amount of diversity on a day-to-day -day level. And so I started, you know, picking the brains of some of my classmates. And by the time I was a junior, I lived in an apartment. It was me and three African-American friends of mine. And so I started to try and understand and get a little bit of a, a taste because I'll never be able to understand it fully. You know, I, there's no way I can understand what it's like to grow up as an African-American in this country. But you start to learn about it a little bit. And then one of my first jobs at a college was in Memphis, Tennessee, a whole different world from where I grew up in a small town in Connecticut. And during my time in Memphis, you know, I made trips into Mississippi. I went to, you know, the campus at Ole Miss, the campus at Mississippi State. You drive through different parts of the country. And so, you know, I really was was trying to find a way to to educate myself as best I could, because like you said, you can't pick where you're born and you can't pick where you grow up sometimes. But once you get old enough to make the choices and learn how to understand things, if you don't make the choice to do those types of things and gather the knowledge that you should to at least try and empathize a little bit, even if you can't fully comprehend, that's what we all need to be doing. For those of us who didn't come from that background, you have to educate yourself. And so you know, for me, you know, I would say, again, growing up in a place that was overwhelmingly almost exclusively white, it wasn't until the last seven to 10 years of my life that I really had an opportunity to learn and broaden my horizons. But I think by doing that, you're able to understand a little bit, a fraction of why some of these issues are so important to people of color. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's just like anything in life. Um, as 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 the black race or as, as minorities, we need we need other people like yourself to understand, you know, the plight of, of of us, in order to help us, because we can't do it alone, you know. And and um, I've, I've had the pleasure of having, you know, uh, some great great white friends who understand who. Um, speak out against injustices who who are dear to my heart, you know, and and those are the people that I lean on in situations, and they lean on me to get a better understanding of things, and they want to see things change, and, and that's what it's going to take for us to kind of get past this and, and get to a place where you know things aren't you know so so just lopsided in certain situations. 
Well, you know, you mentioned, you know, growing up in one particular part of the country and now you're coaching in that part of the country as well at, at Mississippi Valley State. But given, you know, the, the nature of your job as an NBA player, you were traveling the country, traveling into Canada, all these different cities. So with somebody who has some really wide experience and, and who has viewed the country in many different lenses, albeit, you know, maybe you're only in those cities for a night or two, but when you play in the league as long as you did, you hit all those cities over and over and over again. So what is it like to see all of the different protests and, and things that have gone on, demonstrations, both peaceful and not peaceful, in these cities that, you know, maybe you didn't live in them, but you have bounced in and out of all these different parts of the country over the course of your career? Well, I, I, I tell you one thing that is uh, it, it's really good to see how diverse the crowds are, how diverse the people are that honestly are there to see a change. Uh, and, and every city you look at, you know, you don't just see all black. You don't just see all white. You see everybody. It, it's a true melting pot of people that are concerned about the future of our country. And, and man, that, that really warms your heart. And that, that makes you feel like things can get better. Things can change. Um, because I've, I've talked to a lot of young people, including my, my kids. Um, and, and, you know, uh, my daughter specifically, she, she's, you know, she's a very passionate person like me and, and, you know, just comforting her because she felt helpless. She felt like things will never change. And, and, and you have to constantly have the conversations and the tough conversations with them to, to, to make them understand that, you know, um, I, 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 I equate it to, to having birth, you know, you know, I will never understand the pain of having a child. I can only go through the experiences with my wife and, and I've been there with her. Um, and our country right now is birthing something new and it's painful, you know, it's painful and it's not going to be um, happy go lucky all the time. But in order for things to change, you know, um, you have to go through some stringent times and, and, and that's what we're going through right now. Um, and, and, you know, we have to walk and talk our, our young people through these things and try to get them to understand why they're feeling the way that they're feeling and, and get them to talk about it so we can, you know, nurture them through this because, you know, it, it's a tough situation for anybody to go through right now. You know, I'm, um, my daughter wants to go down and, and watch and, and go down and be part of these things. And, you know, and then you have to, still worry about the pandemic you know right. we have so much going on in our country um and and man who knows why god is allowing all these things to happen um you know you you always hope and pray that you know the, the good things will come from this and, and that's what we have to do it as well as educate ourselves educate you know the young people and educate people that uh don't quite understand yeah, you know, speaking of young people, you're dealing with players on your team and in your program that are probably ranging anywhere from 18 to maybe 21, 22 years old, depending on if a guy red shirts or not. And so what would you say or how would you describe kind of the range of emotions of your own players? Because these are some of the people that, you know, they're not too much younger than me. They're only 10, 10 years younger than me or so. And so you got to these are the people who, you know, weren't necessarily privy to or around some of the events in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that led up to some of these things that we're dealing with now. So what would you, how would you sort of gauge the emotions of your players and, and what have you kind of seen from them in terms of, you know, their feelings on everything that's happening? Well, a lot, a lot of guys are, you know, I, I think they, they're feeling their emotions, you know, of course their emotions are going all over the place. Um, but, but I think 
Um, most of them understand. They, they understand um, what's going on. Um, you, you challenge them to, um, you know, research some history and find out, you know, uh, about, you know, the times that, that, that other riots happened and other protests happened and just see um, the ramifications and, and, and what it was about. Um, you, you just want your guys to be educated about it, man, and you want them to have a, a, some sense of, you know, ownership in, in what's going on. Um, you know, I, I love guys that, that, you know, challenge me um, to be a broader thinker, and, and I do that for my players also. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's just, you know, you're, you're proud when you select guys that do care and then they know that you care about them. Um, and I think that's the most gratifying thing for me is that my guys know I care, you know. You know, you were in college in the late 80s and early 90s, and you were in a part of the country where, and in a conference that was overwhelmingly, you know, made up of black players. And so to be at Alcorn State to start and then Jackson State to finish your career, what do you remember about what the environment was like for young African-American males in the late 80s and early 90s? Well, I just, for me, growing up in Mississippi and, and being always being a part of the uh, HBCU experience, because my father, uh, you know, he took me to every uh, football game. He took me to every basketball game. You know, we were big time supporters of sports. So we wanted to be at every event that, that happened. Um, and, and I just remember, you know, how uh, growing up and, and doing certain things, especially, you know, in the South and, 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 and in the SWAC, we were always looked at as inferior, you know, and and that really motivated me, especially when we got to Jackson State and and having a, a really good team my sophomore year. You know, we were good. We won the, the, the conference. Um, but by my senior year, I mean, we, we had one of the best teams in the country. Uh, you know, we, we went on to play. Um, we played Kansas and you know, we lost to Kansas by four points and they were number two in the country or something like that, you know. We, we, we beat Tulane, and they were ranked top 20, you know. And those that team and, and the situations that we went through and the growth that we had with Coach Stoglin was monumental for me, and it made me feel really, really special about the whole experience. And and that, like, that's what I hold on to, and that, that's what I want to rebuild and kind of have that feeling of, hey, we're HBCU. You know, now the times have changed, and and, and I, I think now, you know, back when I was growing up, you know, it was like everything was good. You had the Fab Five back then. Yep. And, and you, had, you had Kansas teams that were great. You know, you had those Duke teams that were great. And I think that was the end of the UNLV run. So it was, there were really good college teams back then, and, and, and I think there are still really good college teams. I think the dynamics have changed because now, you know, you have the, the – the kids that are leaving school earlier now more so than it was back then. Um, and now with the, the G League uh, taking, uh, you know, uh, kids that are straight out of high school, it's going to change the dynamics a lot. Um, so I, when I look and I compare, you know, the times I was growing up and, and, and especially without social media, I mean, that changed the world. No you doubt. know, because <laughs> I, I can only imagine if we had had social media, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, it, it, I couldn't imagine what that would have been like for us. Well, you know, to be coming from an HBCU and a conference that traditionally, you know, gets overlooked, as you mentioned, and, and thought of as yeah. in, inferior, 
to be the number 10 pick in the 93 draft, maybe at the time it was difficult to realize, or maybe it wasn't, but did you feel um, a, a larger sense of pride that not only were you you know, being picked on behalf of Jackson State, but you were being picked on behalf of a group of schools that doesn't necessarily have lottery picks that often. And all of a sudden, you're the number 10 overall pick going to the Detroit Pistons, who, you know, were at the tail end of the bad boys era, where they're in the finals and the Eastern Conference finals every year. I mean, what did it mean to you at the time? Well, I I think it was so surreal to me at the time, because I didn't, you know, it, it was like living a dream that you really didn't understand and didn't, uh, it, it, it took a couple of months to go by to really for it to sink in for me because, um, you know, my, my father always uh, tried to keep me grounded as far as basketball was concerned, and he would always preach to me about, hey, basketball is what you do. It's not who you are. Um, and and so I, although I was, you know, I was extremely excited and extremely um, just thrilled to, 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 to have done something uh, coming from where I came from. Um, but there were a lot of guys in that league, you know. Uh, I was the highest draft pick there, but Al Ford was draft. Al Ford and um, a kid named Buford from Mississippi Valley, two kids that were drafted from there. Um, it, it was a lot of talent in our league at the time, and I was proud of the fact that we all got to represent the SWAC and, and go to the next level to show kids that, man, it doesn't matter where you go. If you work hard. And, and, and if you're passionate about, um, you know, being somewhere, then you can make it happen wherever you are. I think one of the things that it's easy for, you know, fans and, and journalists to overlook when it comes to athletes is that when you get drafted or signed by a particular team and you move across the country to a new city that, you know, you're, you're people too. And so you're, you're experiencing new environments and new surroundings that you haven't gone through before. And I remember when I covered the Packers uh, for four years in Green Bay, there were, you know, there were players from the South who had never seen snow before, and they were trying to learn how to drive in snow for the first time. So for, for somebody like yourself that had grown up in and around the South your, your entire life, and all of a sudden you're, you're going to Detroit, Michigan, what did you think of, of A, kind of, you know, living in a northern city for the first time, but B, you know, being in a city that is very blue-collar, very hardworking, and does have, you know, a large African-American presence? What did you think of Detroit for the first time? Well, um, you know, coming uh, coming from Mississippi, because my father, my mom and dad worked at uh, General Motors. So uh, this being the Motor City was kind of like a, uh, a second home to, to us, you know. And, and uh, But the, the, the crazy thing was, like you just said, the snow. I had never driven in snow. I never experienced, <laughs> I had never experienced snow uh, being on roads for a long period of time. We've seen snow in Mississippi, but probably melted right away sure you know so um i, I and and i just remember um i think the first week uh i was i was there to, to to practice and it was a snowstorm and um alan houston was my neighbor because alan was drafted right with me and we lived right next door to one another and we called each other that morning because you know he's from tennessee i'm from mississippi we were southern boys who had never experienced you know driving in snow and <laughs> we called uh we called our uh up to the practice facility, called our coach and was like, uh, do we have practice today? <laughs> <laughs> and they were like they laughed at us. They laughed at us and they were like, guys, you have practice every day. And we were like, Whoa. So, you know, that that was an experience for us, but, but Detroit was uh easily a second a second home for me. Um I, I was embraced here, uh, you know, uh, still have a place here to this day. 
and and it'll always be you know home away from home for me. You know, as I was doing my research to get ready to record this podcast, I was looking at you know the various points in your career, and and you know you were. Uh, you were involved in some amazing circumstances in terms of your first season with a lot of the teams that you were with and Detroit was no different. I mean, you come in and you guys, the the Pistons still have Joe Dumars. You still have Isaiah Thomas. You still have Bill Lambeer, but five or six games into the season, Lambeer retires because he gets in a fight with Isaiah Thomas or a series of fights with Isaiah Thomas. This is the end of the, the, the bad boy era, if you will. It's Isaiah Thomas's last year in the league. I mean, first of all, you know, what was it like to just kind of be in the NBA for the very first time? And then, you know, within a few games, there's fighting on the team and the team is kind of breaking <laughs> apart a little bit. And there's a new coach. It's it's uh, you know, it's it's Don Chaney, his first season there. I mean, I, I, you talk about a whirlwind experience of being drafted. I got to think your first couple months were a whirlwind, too. Absolutely. I didn't know what was going on. You know, uh, you, you pluck a, a 21 year old kid out of college and and infuse him in a situation where it, there's a lot of tension there's a lot and and you know me not knowing all the underlying problems that was going on at the time but you see the results of it with some fights and you know uh people uh, i think um alvin robinson attacked our gm Jeez. isaiah and, and yeah it was crazy isaiah and, and and lambeer got into it and isaiah breaks his hand in practice uh, Lambeer all of a sudden retires. I mean, it was it was a roller coaster ride, and, and our team wasn't very good, so I'd never lost like that before in my life. Um, so it it was a it was a it was a mental struggle a lot of times, you know, being that young. Luckily, I had a, you know I had Allen there with me, so we struggled together, so that made it a little better. Um, but but man, I learned a lot. I learned so much going through all those different situations in my career. Um, and I, I've made a lot of, of friends along the way uh, who are, are still, you know, uh, close to me to this very day. Um, and, and I, you know, I wouldn't change any of that, any of those things that, that I experienced because it, it's made me the person I am today. And I, and I, I you know, a lot of things you go through, um, you know, are growing pains. You have to, you have to go through things to grow into you know, understand where you are today. And, and those things molded me, you know, and, and really taught me that I love basketball and I was really passionate about it. And, and is one of the reasons why I'm coaching today. Were Isaiah and or Joe, the kind of guys to, to be oh. mentor figures for you and Allen being the two young guards in the organization, or did you gravitate towards some of the other veterans? Well, man, it, it's funny. Isaiah was calling me a lot you know, before I actually signed my contract, just trying to get me ready and talk to me about different things. But man, the weirdest thing was, and people probably don't know this, Bill Lambeer really gravitated to me. Really? And, yeah, yeah. The weirdest thing, and he really was teaching me a lot of things about what, you know, what to do on the court, as well as Isaiah and Joe. But it was just strange to me that Bill was really you know, hands on about showing me, hey, when you're using pick and roll, you know, everybody called me little fella back then. Little fella, when you're using pick and roll, you know, make sure you wait for me to come. You know, it, it was it was fascinating for me, and I and people still were like, what? Bill and Bill? And I'm like, yeah, Bill. You know, but he did go on to start coaching. Remember, he coached in the WNBA. And no doubt. Did well, you know. 
So as you as you start to get a little bit more comfortable in the league, going from your first to your second season, you know you mentioned that the team didn't win a lot for you as a rookie, and so that means going into '94, '95, you guys have the opportunity to draft some kid named Grant Hill. I'm not sure if you ever ever heard of him before, <laughs> but you know Grant Hill's yeah. one of those guys that you know you always hear conversations now. The what if? What if you know Tracy McGrady didn't have so many injuries? What if Derrick Rose's knees didn't give out? And and to some extent, Grant Hill with the foot and ankle problems. You could put him right in there, and as a rookie, he comes into the league and averages a hair under 20 points a game. How good was young Grant Hill? Oh, I, I, I tell people all the time, um, had Grant stayed healthy, he the torch would have been passed to him. From Michael to Grant, you know, and then then go and so so on and so forth because he was that good. He he was phenomenal. He was. He was uh, LeBron James-esque. You know, wow. he was that type of player. Um, and and it was unfortunate, man, that he got hurt right at the pinnacle when he started to take off into super, superstardom because he was that good. I, I think there's no doubt in my mind, if, had Grant Hill not gotten hurt, we'd be talking about Grant Hill. Um, we'd be talking about Kobe. We'd be talking about LeBron as well. He'd be in that group. What was it about his game that was that was so potent and so unique? Man, he was he was a six eight three that could do everything. I mean, he could he, he was he could do all the things that LeBron can do, but he was he was more. I, I think he was more he was smoother than LeBron. Like he, LeBron has a, a, a rigidness about his game, um, and, and Grant was more poetic. Like you know, like a like a a, a ballerina. He had that type of flow to his game, and but he could do all the things that LeBron could do. Everything that LeBron could do, Grant could do. Shortly after Grant joined the organization, I think it was going into his second season, there's a coaching change, and, and Doug Collins comes in. And, and I'm, I don't know if you watched The Last Dance, you know, being a basketball guy, I'm sure you did, but there was a, you know, a part in there about Doug Collins, about how the Bulls had brought him in to kind of be – um, to coach Michael in the young portions of Michael's career. And so there were some articles about when Doug was hired in Detroit that the logic was similar, that he had done such a good job in terms of, you know, sort of developing Michael in the late 80s that why can't he do the same thing with a guy like Grant Hill? Did you get the idea that Doug was brought in, you know, in some ways to be a mentor to Grant? Yeah, I, I think he, he was brought in and, and absolutely the same scenario he wanted to um i think everybody saw a lot of what grant did you know to the extent of what michael was doing in chicago you know there were a lot of similarities and i think uh, having a young grant and uh, um doug wasn't you know he, he was he was still young in a sense but he was an older coach at that point so i felt like they thought you know doug had got to a point where he could push Grant and, and get Grant to that level. Um, and and you could see it. You could see it. We, we played like the Bulls, <laughs> we, you know. Um, the, the ball was in Grant's hand a lot, and, and he did a lot of things. And um, you, you definitely could see the similarities. So when you started to settle into the league after a couple of seasons, what did you – 
what what did you think about your game that you knew okay every night these are going to be my strengths and okay every day in practice these are going to be the things I want to work on a little bit in other words which part of your game translated the best to the NBA early in your career and which parts did you have to develop more through your first few seasons well I, I knew I could I knew I could score I knew I could shoot the ball and I knew I could defend and 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 um one of my one of my coaches always told me, Coach Stogden always told me at Jackson State, if you can defend and score, you'll always be on the floor. <laughs> so, so those were two things that I knew. Um, I, I knew I needed to um, take my playmaking up a couple of levels, and and because the NBA was different than college, I could make plays in college, you know, with no problem. The NBA playmaking was was a little different, and. Um, and, and just trying – and the biggest thing for me was adapting to coaching philosophies. Like coaches – because a coach can see you in a different light than you see yourself, you know. And and if, if their role for you is a certain thing, then you have to learn to kind of fit into what they're, they want you to be, you know. Um, and, and that never stops you from working on, as, as, you know, advancing your game and, and expanding your game. But you do always have to, you know, try to fit into what that coach wants you to be. That's really interesting. You know, in, in football terms, I've talked to guys who have said, you know, uh, an early portion of a guy's career can be, you know, made or broken by how strong yep. or not strong their relationship is with their particular position coach. Because in the NFL, you have coaches for every single position. And so I'm wondering, right. in in the, the few coaching changes that you went through early in Detroit, you know, with new staffs coming in and going out, was there a head coach or an assistant coach that, that you kind of bonded with that was really good for your growth and development early in your career? Oh, man. There, there were... A... We had so many different coaching changes. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> and I think that made it a little more difficult for me because I didn't have that one guy that I could really uh, learn from and, and really be a, a solid voice in my ear. Um, I, I just remember being in the film room and them showing me video of uh, John Stockton. I was sitting here watching John Stockton for 30 minutes, and I'm like, in my own mind, I'm sitting here like, I played nothing like that, you know? <laughs> uh, but, you know, and, and those are some of the things. And that taught me as a coach a lot of different things, too. It, it taught me as a coach um, how, to, how to get the best out of my players regardless of what their skill set is. Um, and, and it also taught me not to try to put a, 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 a round peg in a, in a square hole, you know? <laughs> you learn those things and, and sometimes you wonder why you go through certain things and you know kind of at, at this point of my life I understand now and it really does help me um, with development you know with understanding um, with with figuring out you know what type of offenses and defenses to run according to the type of talent and the type of players I have. You know, toward the end of your, your first run in Detroit there in 98-99, they bring in a guy named Alvin Gentry, who's now coaching the Pelicans. And, you know, this was a guy that you would eventually end up working for when you broke into coaching for the first time as a member of the Suns. And so I'm wondering, if you think back about those couple of years when you first met Alvin and when you first got to work with him as the player-coach relationship, was there anything about your bond or your connection as player and coach that, that you knew it was going to, A, be a lasting relationship, and B, might be a guy who you would enjoy, you know, potentially working with or picking up philosophies from as a coach? 
No, I, 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 at that point we'd had so many different coaches. You know, you just kind of look at them all um, the same. It's like, hey, we got a new coach. You know, let's see how long this lasts. You know, and and um, my my thing has always been one constant, and, and I and, and I I was taught this as a kid, and and I I lived by this to this day, and and it's treat people the way you want to be treated. Um, mean what you say, say what you mean, and and I've always lived by that. And I've stood by that, and and I, I'll, to this day I'll tell people all the time, hey, you know I'm not perfect. Nobody is perfect, but one, one thing I'll, I'll always challenge anybody on is if I if Lindsey said something to you, he 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 meant it, and he he's gonna tell you the truth, good, bad, and different. You know, and, and I I took I, I that that's my reputation, and my and your word is the only thing you really have in this world. Uh, you know. And, and I take that serious, and I, and I've always taken that serious. And you know, I, I tell people all the time. I there are people I can still call in the NBA to this day. I have a, gr- a lot of great relationships um, that that I use, you know, to my advantage to help players out, to help guys get NBA workouts, to to get guys in a position where they may not, you know, thought they could get in without a phone call or something. Because you know, guys take my calls serious, and and I right. and I cherish those relationships, you know. Well, you know, you talked about the importance of integrity and and meaning what you say. And a lot of times in sports, that can get muddied a little bit when players are traded or there's contract talks going on because, you know, there's all kinds of dynamics involved in those two scenarios that sometimes a guy is talking to the media and sometimes he's not. And, you know, know, sometimes a GM will say one thing and then do another thing. So, you know, at the end of your, your first run in Detroit, you go through a period of time where you get traded. I think it was five times in four years or something like that. And so what was that experience like to have to, you know, learn new front office folks, meet new coaches, you know, maybe you're told one thing and it turns out to be another. What is that like to just kind of change teams so frequently in a, in a brief little period there? Well, it, 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 I, I, at that point I knew um, it was a business and, and it wasn't a big deal for me. Um, I, I had went through some traumatic things in my life, uh, especially after the um, Milwaukee, uh, after playing in Milwaukee, I, I lost my little brother that summer. And, um, you know, basketball was really, really, like, helping me just survive, you know? Sure. Uh, at that point, I wasn't really myself because I lost a, a – you know, my, my little brother was 11 years younger than me, and, and and he, you know, it was just us two. So I lost a lot when I lost him, and, and it was hard to try to regain traction – and, and I even contemplated retirement, you know, and, and my father talked me out of it. Um, so I kept playing, and, and, you know, and basketball was good for me at that point. You know, I had a family then and my wife and my kids. So um, basketball was good for me. It, it really helped me get through that. Um, so it wasn't a big deal for me. It was just, hey, this is what happens. The, the, and I tell young players, I used to tell young players all the time, hey, don't worry if you're traded. Worry if nobody wants you. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So so as a as a player who has moved around a couple of times, and in Detroit you guys started out not winning a lot of games, but then toward the end of your first run there, you start making the playoffs, although you don't advance in the playoffs. And then all of a sudden, in 01-02, you're on a team that is the two-time defending champions. You find yourself in Los Angeles playing for the Lakers. This would, you know, eventually end in a three-peat. You know, you'd win your first title that year. But all of a sudden, you know, you're on a team with with Shaq and Kobe and Phil and 
And what is that experience like to walk into that gym for the first time? Yeah, it, it was it was it was quite an experience uh, being around guys that are larger than life, like Shaq and, and Kobe. Um, you know, you learn a lot, and you learn a lot about you know the the, the people that you work with, um, and and just seeing the experience of being in a championship environment was invaluable to me. You know, I learned so much about how hard, regardless of the talent you have, it's really hard to win a championship. <laughs> it's we we were one play away from not being in the finals. Yeah, we we were one um, Vladi Divac's rebound or lack thereof rebound of not getting you know to to the finals and and um and that's what happens a lot of times no matter how great your teams are man it, it's hard to win a championship and and I I learned that firsthand. And, and, you know, uh, moving on in my career, when I got to Detroit, man, I, all those things that I had learned, you know, I, I, I share with, with, you know, my, my peers as well as my coaches. You know, that, that team in, in 01, 02, not only did you play all 82 games, you started 47 of them. And that was a team that had, you know, in the, in the backcourt, it was primarily a mixture of, of you, um, Kobe, and then Derek Fisher. And so what was the dynamic like with the three of you guys? And, and was Kobe a kind of guy where, you know, you had to earn his trust or was he kind of, um, was he willing to mentor some of the younger players because he wanted things done his way? What was kind of the, the three of you, or what was the dynamic with the three of you like in that backcourt? Well, I, I think it was, uh, Kobe was Kobe. Like Kobe just was driven. Uh, he wanted to work hard and he wanted to win. And you saw that, you know, he was younger, of course. But his work ethic was just ridiculous, you know. And and I think he 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 when he saw other players, that that's what he expected. So you know, I I never, um, I think me being a veteran coming in the way I did, you know, I had I, I had his respect because he knew type of player I was. I was a no nonsense, no back down type of guy, and and he respected that. Um, so and, and you know, D Fish was uh, of course we kind of played the same position. Uh, and and you know, it, it, but it was a good. I think it was a good mix because, you know, you had the dynamics of you had a Kobe Bryant who could do everything. You had two guys who could defend um, and, and and score the basketball. So it, it worked out well for us, and you know, ended up in, in helping us win a title. What did you uh, What did you make of the the Kobe Shaq dynamic that has been you know scrutinized and dissected so many times over the years ad nauseum? What was uh, I mean What were they like together? Did they get along at that point, or was it starting to fray a little bit? No, they they were getting along. It, it was it was just like like any household. <laughs> if you live with your you know you, you grew up with your siblings long enough, I'm sure you guys got to arguments and fights about something. So it, it was nothing. It was the same thing. And I think because of who they were, people blew it out of proportion and made it about it's his team or his team, you know. And 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 in the NBA, and you know as well as I do, being in in situations like that, it can get blown out of proportion and things oh, no can doubt. go <laughs> and things can go the opposite way because of you know he said this or his, or they said this and you know he says it's his team and he says it's his team. You know? At the end of it all, you know, guys want to win championships. You, you, you're remembered by winning championships and, you know, being a great player. Um, but, but more so, guys want to win it. And, and you know, you watch at, at, at the end of it when, when, when Shaq realized, like, man, 
I should have, you know, maybe we should have made it work. You know, maybe we should, you know, you, you just don't know. And, and um, but, but, you know, everybody has to go through their own growing pain. And I think those guys had to go through it at the time. Yeah, and look, we're talking 18, 19 years ago, so to bring up what you mentioned earlier, imagine if that was the social media era, and imagine if, oh. in addition to whatever those guys were saying or not saying in the post-game locker room, imagine if we're sitting there dissecting who's following who on Twitter and who unliked who <laughs> on Instagram and all this nonsense, it would have just been, uh, it would have been crazy, and and that, that I think is, is one of the things that you know, as as great as some of those dynasties were, and, and I'm not trying to take away from them in any way, shape, or form, but when you when you think about what teams like the Warriors have been doing recently or what, you know, LeBron was able to do in Miami with the volume of distractions there, it is kind of amazing because I, I think when, when you think about the social media era and, and maybe some people who don't use social media say, what are you talking about? It can't be that big of a distraction. All it does is cause headaches. That's all it does. And it's going to be, a, it's, and it's a big problem for some of these teams. I mean, how many times has something that Kevin Durant tweeted been dissected ad nauseum on SportsCenter or whatever? And, and I just think about, you know, these, these older dynasties, like would any of them have been able to, to stick together through the social media era? Would some of them have been totally fine? Would some of them crumbled? It's, it's really fascinating to think about. Right. And, and, I, and I think, um, you know, with, with the different times, um, social media is is so it goes hand in hand with AAU, you know. That's true. Um, yeah, because those two things are so relative to one one another. Because most of the guys now, and I, I know uh, a lot of, I, I have a radio show, and and but I was I, I never wanted to come off as one of those old NBA heads that oh, were, of course, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the guy that was like, oh, you know, our time was better because of this or because of that or. You know, I, I, I love to give people their flowers while they're right here, while they're performing. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody is entitled to their own opinion, and, and I respect that. And I remember having a, a conversation on our show, and they were like, who, you know, this is when, you know, Steph Curry, and I got to coach Steph yep. at Golden State. So this is when, you know, everybody's like, oh, is Steph one of the top guards ever? You know, and, and, I, and my argument was always, well, the guy won two MVPs, you know, the guy, the guy won three titles. It's very hard to leave the greatest shooter of our time, of any time, off of anything that you're talking about with point guard. It's very hard to do that, you know. Um, are there guys that – are there have there been guys better? I think Magic's the best point guard ever, you know. I I, I, I think, you know, but, but you can't um, – with the social media, it changes the dynamics because they had. Think about if Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas and all those guys had social media. Yeah, it just would have been. You crazy. would have known. Yeah, it would have been. You know, would Michael? Would Michael have? You know, even went to college if he had social media. Or I mean, how good would he really been? <laughs> we we, we would have. We certainly would have. Uh, we certainly would have seen photos or video of him at the casino that night right. in Atlantic City. <laughs> It's amazing. It's amazing to think about, you know, you know, as somebody who as a coach who has to recruit a lot of these AAU tournaments, I'm curious, have have you noticed ways in which Steph or Clay or any of these unbelievable shooters, even Durant to some degree, being a, a seven footer who has incredible range for that size? Have they changed AAU basketball? Do you notice kids trying to be more like Steph and Clay and, and Durant as opposed to, you know, the guys maybe 10, 15 years ago who were trying to bully their way to the rim every time? 
Absolutely, because now it's become a pace and space. Everything is pace and space. I I think it's fun, personally. I do like it. (laughs) Um, But one thing I try to get, because, you know, you talk to a lot of kids and and you you hear, hey, who's your favorite player? I I love asking my guys who their favorite player is, because I know it doesn't matter what your skill set is. Whoever your favorite player is, you're going to try to do some of the things that he does. It's just the reality. (laughs) So... So you, you find out who, you know, who's your favorite player. Oh, you know, Kevin Durant. And, and, and my first question to them is, you, you, do you have any idea how many hours that he puts in a day working on his game? You know, because if he's your favorite player, you'll know, you know. Right. And, and, and so they have revolutionized the game. They've changed the game, um, you know, and I, and I think for the better. I, I like the fact that. You know, I love a free-flowing game where, where, you know, you've got guys that can make threes. I love that. <laughs> I love it. And, and it, you know, I, I don't criticize it. I don't, you know, I, I love And I love watching those guys work at what they do. Steph, Clay, and, and, and KD are guys that love the gym. They right. stay in the gym working on their craft. So, you know, and you're just seeing the result of what, they, what, they, what they're passionate about. Have any of the young kids been smart enough to say that their favorite player is Lindsey Hunter? Yeah, I've had a few. I've had a few. <laughs> I've, had a few. I've had a few. You know, and, and um, you know, um, we had we we got we signed a kid, uh, Cameron Cunningham, who's six six two guard. Who, um, it's funny, he knew everything about me. He was like, Coach, I know, I know you you, you came from the swaggy this that and the other, and he was a, a highly recruited kid, man. And he was like, You think I can do it? And I was like, Hey, if you do, if you work as hard as, as, as you know. Uh, you can and 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 I do my part to help you. Hey, why not? You know, and and he was a kid. We were just man fascinated to to be able to sign, and um, it makes you feel good when 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 kids trust you with their future, knowing that you have their 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 best interest in hand. And and I think that's the gratifying part for me. When uh, when guys talk to you about their career, do any of them ask you about that unbelievable Western Conference Finals with the Lakers Kings in '02? No, they always they everybody wants to know about the Pistons. They don't. <laughs> everybody wants to know about the Pistons because of I guess uh, the characters we had on that team and, yeah. and how good we were. Um, yeah, but that that man, like I said, that that series and, and that game winning shot by Big Shot Bob. <laughs> oh, man, we were we were one shot away from not not going to the finals, and and it was a phenomenal phenomenal. Uh, uh, game for us, and then you had all that controversy about the the free throws and the disparity, and and I think sometimes people forget how good those Kings teams really were. I mean, you talk about Bibby and Christie and Stojakovic and Weber and Divots. I mean, that team won sixty one really, games. They were really good. They were they were just as good as we were. I mean, and it showed. We it took Game Seven to beat them. Yep, and and it took it took a lucky bounce of the ball for us to win you know they had us beat they had us beat at home <laughs> you know and, and man it, it, they were really good and you know history will always remember the, the champions and um, I tell people uh, we talk about it with my son all the time about you know how many people did Michael Jordan stop from winning championships think about it he stopped a lot of great players from winning championships you know and um the, the the Lakers did the same thing. They stopped a lot of great teams from winning championships. 
How did it feel to win your first title? What was your emotion when the buzzer goes off and, and you guys are world champions? Uh, I mean, it, it was a surreal feeling, but it was it was like unbelievable to go through all the things and do the the, um, the parades and and um, you know the 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 dinners and the parties and all that stuff that my parent my my wife and my kids got to experience. Man, it was it was fascinating and. Um, it, once you have once you have that feeling, you always want to you you think that you went should win the championship every year. That's what you feel like, you know. And I, I just remember after I left the Lakers, um, I was like, man, if I I gotta win, I gotta go somewhere to win a championship, man. There's nothing else like that, you know. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get to Detroit in 2003. And you have an opportunity to be part of a team that is really, really good, really good. And and maybe a team that you could argue was the best in, in modern memory, or at least the last 20 years or so, that didn't have an intergalactic megastar like a LeBron James or a Kobe Bryant or a Kevin Durant. And, you know, I think now you mentioned now how a lot in a lot of ways the game is becoming, you know, somewhat positionless and that big guys can step out and, you know, everybody can shoot and there's space and all this stuff. You know, when you look at that Pistons team and, and the starting five that you had and even some of the guys off the bench, that was about as, as perfect a position by position lineup as I can recall because you had Chauncey and Hamilton and Tayshawn and Rashid and Ben. And, I mean, one through five, those are your prototypical one through five. Am, am I accurate in that? Yeah. Very accurate, very accurate. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think when we traded for Sheed, that was the deciding factor of us just catapulting ourselves to be great. Because people, people look at how dynamic Sheed is, and Sheed is very dynamic offensively. He can score inside, outside. He can do everything at pass. But, man, he can defend. He really can defend. And and I think that's so underrated for, for him as, as a, you know, he doesn't like you to call him a seven footer, so we always say he's six eleven. Six eleven, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that dude could defend. He gave Tim Duncan fits, Kevin Garnett. He could guard anybody, and and you know, of course, we know how great of a defender Ben was. You got those two guys down there defending that. It made it so much easier on the perimeter for for us guards. Yeah. And I mean, I had an opportunity, you know, later in his career, almost toward the very end to be around Tayshawn and, and he could defend three or four different positions with his length and quickness, too. And so that team was that team was something. And, uh, and you know, that that group, you know, were there any similarities? I know, you know, in terms of um, the players themselves, extremely different than the lineup you guys trotted out in Los Angeles. But in terms of maybe work ethic or intangibles or maybe the way the coaches did something, was there were there any similarities between a group that won a title in Los Angeles and a group that won a title in Detroit? Well, I I, I think we were it was just two different teams because you had the megastars on the Lakers. You had Kobe and Shaq. Um on being a team like we did a lot of things like we we went out to dinner together we we um we went to movies together we we hung out i mean it was just a really really close-knit group of guys um and and we held each other accountable we were like we were like a family we were brothers i could fuss at rip i could yell at you know and and we wouldn't take it personal we just went out to win the games uh and and I think that was the biggest difference in those two teams. Um, defensively, we were just unbelievable. I, 
I don't know statistic-wise, but I know that's probably one of the best defensive teams to ever compete in NBA. It's got to be up there. It's got to be up there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that team was fun to watch for me because as somebody who, you know, spent the first – 22-ish years of my life in Connecticut and had two parents who went to UConn. I was a huge Hamilton fan. And I actually have a, I actually have a, a baseball hat from when I went to a UConn football game when I was like seven or eight years old with my dad. And Richard Hamilton and Khalid el signed the hat, and I still have it from when I was a little kid. So that was always fun to me to watch him and the way he ran off screens and just would run and run and run and run. And he was, he was a fun guy to watch. And, uh, you know, I went and looked at his numbers the other day because he was, he was maybe one of the last really good two guards who didn't rely more so on the three point shot than the two point shot. And and I always thought that that was fascinating because, you know, even when he was at UConn and I watched him when they won the title in 99, I mean, anything from eight feet to, to 17 feet. I mean, it was going in almost every time. Oh, he's phenomenal. He was, he was, he was even more so phenomenal in practice working on it. Um, but he, um, man, he, he, he really, I think one, one of the underrated parts of his game also um, was, was his defense. You know, he really developed into a great defender and, and, that made us even that much better with Tayshawn, you know, uh, Ben and, and Rashid and Rip really bought into the defensive end. Man, it was great. Yeah, I remember that the defense was always what Jim Calhoun used to rail on him for when he was at UConn. In fact, there was this quote from Calhoun that I always loved and remembered. He used to tell Hamilton that he couldn't guard a chair, and that was uh, that was as good as his defensive <laughs> ability was in college. He couldn't guard a stationary object, so I always thought that was funny. But, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your, your second stint in Detroit without at least bringing up, and I know you've been probably asked about it a million times, but what in the world was it like to be on the floor during the malice at the palace that night? Oh, it was, it was nuts. <laughs> it was crazy. We actually stay, I think we didn't leave the arena till like three, three o'clock in the morning. Wow. You know? And, um, it, it was just crazy how everything kind of took off and went far left. And we just sat there and was like, man, is, is this going to end? And fans got involved and, you know the rest of history saw that, but it it was it was the craziest thing I'd ever been a part of in my in my career. You know, as far as being on the court, it, it was oh, it was nuts. It was nuts. I yeah, I can't even imagine. And and still, when you go back and watch it, it, it almost doesn't. I mean, every so often there's going to be fights in the NBA and in any sport, but you just look at that, and it's it's almost like somebody wrote it in a movie because it's so surreal and so unbelievable and 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 that season you guys you if i remember correctly you end up going back to the finals again that year right so not only do you have oh, yeah. all this turmoil and everything and some suspensions and things but you end up back in the finals in a game seven against it was the spurs right yep yep right back to the finals uh one play away from winning it all and, and we lost it because uh once again big rob big big shot bob hits a, a three send the game into overtime against us at home. When you look at that Pistons team, they were really good, and they had a run where, you know, I think you guys went to six straight conference finals, and I think you were part of five of them. The first one was the year before you got there the second time. You know, if that team had won a second title, 
Do you think that they would be talked about a lot more than they are now? Because six conference finals in a row is hard enough, but you throw in two titles instead of one, and, and that kind of would have taken it to another level, do you think, in terms of you know historical remembrance? Oh, absolutely. And we talk about it all the time. We felt like, you know, we win two. We win two back-to-back. That puts you in an elite class of, of, of teams, you know? <laughs> And, and it, it hurt us when we didn't, but, but we were right there. We gave ourselves uh, every opportunity to win it. You know, the Spurs were a better team that year, and, and you know, they, they beat us in seven games, and it went down to the wire, which, you know, was rightfully so. The teams were so evenly matched. Um, but, man, it, it still hurts me to this day that you brought that back up. But um, <laughs> but it, 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 it was a great round for us, though. It was a great round. The, the good thing is that you already had two rings in your pocket by that point, because if that had been the only time you had made it to the finals, I could imagine that would be that would be brutal. Um, I, I want to ask you a couple questions to finish up here about your, your switch into coaching, but I got one last thing to ask you about your playing career, and I mentioned way back at the beginning that your first season with a lot of the teams that you played for was very interesting, and the Bulls were no exception because that year in 2008, you know, when you were getting ready to finish up your career, the last little run there in Chicago, you know, they got the number one overall pick and they bring in a guy named Derrick Rose. And I remember just this week seeing a video on Twitter and it was, uh, it was, you know, your old teammate, Richard Hamilton, talking about how when Derrick Rose was young and healthy and injury free, he was a guy that absolutely nobody in the league wanted to play against. So I'm wondering if you remember what it was like to be in practice and play with and practice against young, healthy, injury-free Derrick Rose. Oh, man. I, I, I talk about him all the time because I, I kind of was there to mentor him and help him. And the he was amazing. He was amazing. He was amazing in practice. I've watched him do things as a point guard that I was like, you know, that's something you just can't teach, you know? And, and watching him um, – going to the playoffs and what he did to Boston by himself. <laughs> it was one of the most impressive things that I've ever seen. Um, and, and his, with his demeanor and, you know, he's such a, he's one of those guys you would consider a, a silent assassin because he's quiet, doesn't say much, but boy, when he gets out on the floor, it, 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 it I mean, he was, and, and you didn't see how great, um, you see how great um, the, the guard at OKC, I mean, he's at Houston now. Um, Russell Westbrook, is. yep. Derek was better. And, and Westbrook, but, uh, MVP, um, average a triple-double, Derek was better. There was a point where Derek Rose was the guy to take ahead of Westbrook, you know, before the injury. Then, and I watched those two duel, and, you know, Derek was better. He was better. So at that point in your career, when you, when you can kind of maybe see the light at the end and you know you're playing more of a mentor role, what were some of the things that you try to impart on a young guy like that, that, you know, for somebody like you who has been around the league and played with and against superstars, you see that he has the potential to reach the upper echelon. So how do you try and nurture him a little bit and bring along his growth as a, as a player and, you know, a young man too? Yeah, just, you know, I, I just really – shared with him all of my experiences and the things that I'd went through and the things that I saw and the things that I thought could make him maximize his abilities. And, and man, the great thing about the great thing about those guys that have that 
they want to be great. They want to be coached. They want to, they, they listen, they listen to everything you say and they hang on to the things that, uh, you know, you say to them. And I, re- I just respected that so much um, with Derek. Derek was just like, man, warning information. Hey, what do you think I should do? What do you think, you know, could I do this? Hey, what, how do I work out of a double team? They're, they're, they're trapping me, you know? And, and it was fascinating for me just seeing the hunger and how he wanted to maximize being the best he could be. Did you already know by that point in your career that you wanted to go into coaching? Were you one of the vets that knew that early enough? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I knew I always wanted to be around the game. I, I love, you know, being in the gym. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big-time gym rat. Um, so coaching was definitely the thing that I, I wanted to do. And again, you know, your first run at coaching, this this theme of your first year being so surreal in different places, you go to Phoenix with Alvin Gentry in 2012-13, and, you know, in January, I think it was, of that year, Alvin resigns. And all of a sudden, you're an interim head coach after you've right. been part of the organization for, for, you know, less than a year. I mean, how how are you even handling something like that? Being a, a coach for the first time, and all of a sudden you're you're the guy who brings you in is is gone in less than a year. And then, I, I, if I remember correctly, based on the research I did, one of your other assistant coaches, Dan Marley, leaves, and you bring somebody over from from the Phoenix Mercury, the WNBA team. I mean, that has to be. I mean, if, if anything was going to scare you out of coaching, that might have been it. <laughs> no. Well, well, uh, to. to to let you get a better grasp of the dynamics of that situation i was so i worked at phoenix i was a scout first right the year before and i I went from scouting to being uh director of player uh development and so that's because because you know i'm uh lance blanks brought me there as a scout who you know one of my mentors and uh, he was the uh gm there and and lance would always ask me you know what, what would you rather be would you rather be uh, Mitch Kupchak or Phil Jackson? <laughs> you know, that was always asking. And I was like, dude, I don't like being in this office. I'm definitely not a GM type of guy. You I want to be, be on the court. <laughs> yes, I want to be on the court, you know. And and um, and when, 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 when Alvin, you know, resigned uh, and, and they were, I think they were interviewing everybody on the staff. And, and I think I was one of the last guys to interview. Um, and, and, they were, you know, of course, Lance was high on me and asking me, hey, would you, you know, would you want to do this? I was like, heck yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? You know? Um, and, and, and man, it was, it was, it was great. It was fun. It was, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I learned, I think, um, that I really can do this, you know? Um, and, and I wanted to do it. Um, um, and, and, and I, I think that's when really I truly, um, understood that man, this is what you this is what you were meant to do. You were meant to be a coach, and and I um, ever since then, you know that that's what I've been doing. What did you take away from that experience in in Golden State when you had the opportunity to be around a group that you know went on one of the more legendary runs, and you had Steph and Clay and Iguodala and Draymond and Mark Jackson's the coach at the time when you're there, uh, being around a team that you know became and, and developed into uh, a dynasty when you were there, kind of at the at the root of that starting. What did you take away from those guys and and what they were able to accomplish? Well, I, the the biggest part, and I tell um, you know all my young guys that that I, I coach, 
is Steph, Steph Clay, um, Draymond are some of the most coachable people you'd ever want to be around to be as big a stars as they are. Really? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it amazed me. I was like, whoa, these dudes are just, just super coachable. Like it was, it was, because you know, being in the NBA, I've seen both ends of the spectrum. Sure. But I never, I've never seen guys that, you know, on that level of superstardom be that coachable. And it was, it, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a breath of fresh air, though. It was like, man, that's if you want a superstar, that's what you want, you know. And it's no shock, you know, it wasn't shocking to me that they went on to do um, what they've they've been able to accomplish. Did you um, did you have a, a thought at that time that eventually transitioning to college to work with you know young men that that need a little bit more molding as as young adults was that something that that always appealed to you or or did the opportunity just kind of present itself um, you know going into that 2016-17 season when you you make the move to college and become an assistant at the university at Buffalo? No, it was always appealing to me. I. I um just working with a lot of the young guys that I mentored back here in Detroit, that, that meant, you know, that, that, that part of it, I, I really like, I like the idea of helping get more young men and, and, and helping them, um, you know, attain a goal. And, and especially in college, it, it, it just made, it, it just felt right for me. And, um, you know, it's, it's been nothing short of what I expected. I, I, I love the recruiting part. I love, um, you know, dealing with the kids. I, I love every aspect of it. And, um, you know, I, I, I challenge the kids to grow as well as challenge myself to grow. Um, and and I think that's the fun part about it. You know, you had an opportunity to take over your own program, as I mentioned at the beginning in, in 2019 with Mississippi Valley State. And for somebody who had achieved a tremendous amount like you had on the professional level, you know, being a, a terrific college player, being a lottery pick, winning multiple championships, um, was there still a level of, of specialness to being hired as a head coach and, and having a program of your own for the first time? Did that mean something special to you? Oh, yeah, it meant, it meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to me. It, 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 uh, it, it, it means to me that I can put my stamp, you know, on, on something that uh, is, is truly mine now and, and something I can build and grow and try to build into something special and, and all the things, all the experiences that I've had, um, I can, you know, put a little bit of that in it to, you know, try to make it something different, but with a lot of moving parts that, that I've, I've experienced uh, and hopefully it can grow into something special. Yeah, and some fans are probably familiar with the name Mississippi Valley State. You know, they made the NCAA tournament as recently as 2012, also made it in 2008, and had a couple appearances in the 90s as well. But you definitely inherited a, a rebuilding job, and, you know, not that you didn't know that going in, but it was a team that hadn't right. won more than 10 games since that 2012 NCAA tournament appearance. So you're going in, you're, you're a, a head coach with your own program for the first time, and you know it's a significant rebuild. Um, you know, what, right. what has your strategy been through this first year, and, and what are some of the things that you've seen take hold from your program and what you want to see going into this year two now later this fall? Well, you know, like you said, we knew it was a rebuild. We knew, um, yeah, and, and the time that we I was hired, it wasn't like it was like after the recruiting period, so it was a, it was like a double whammy for right. us. Um, but 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 this year, you know, we we've been able to identify talent and, and get guys to commit to us and sign with us that um, fit what we're trying to do. 
and, and that that you know that's the fun part within itself. Also, I didn't find the talent. Um, you know, getting to know guys, getting to to get guys that fit, you know, fit your culture as well well as your playing style. Um, and I think we've we've been able to do that. We've been able to um, get some talented guys that are that are good people as well as good basketball players um, to to kind of bring in and build something and hopefully uh, have a great turnaround for us. And the last question I have for you is this, you know, you hear a lot of times coaches when they try and build programs at any level in any sport, they have kind of either a, a mantra or a philosophy or traits that they want their players to show on the court, on the field, on the ice, whatever it may be. So what does a Lindsey Hunter basketball team look like for anyone that might have a chance to see your team play later this year on television? Well, uh, you 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 know, we always our our little mantra or whatever is blue collar desperate. That's where we want to be, um, and and you try to instill that into guys, you know, and get guys to understand what that really means. You know that those those are things that the intangibles that that people don't really talk about. The guys that take charge, the guys that dive on the floor. I don't. I shouldn't. You know, uh, we shouldn't have to tell our guys to 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 step in the lane or, or take a charge or, or do things like that. That's that blue collar mentality. And, and that's what we try to instill in all of our guys. That's awesome. Yeah. I could, I mean, you want the guys that are going to dive on the floor. You want guys that are going to, you know, run ragged. And at the end of the game, they need ice on all four limbs because they're so tired. <laughs> right. So that's pretty right. cool. That's pretty cool. Well, well, Lindsay, I thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I think I kept you a little bit longer than I said I would, so I apologize for oh, that. Okay. But that's this okay. was a really fun conversation for me, and I appreciate your uh, your candor on you know some of the more fun stuff, talking ball, and then also it was uh, it was refreshing and 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 it was really nice to hear you speak a little bit about you know what some of the challenges are and what some of the next steps are for for you and your program and and your 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 place in society as a whole. So I appreciate you being open and honest about that. And, and hopefully we right. can continue to make strides in the right direction. Absolutely. So there you have it, a conversation with two-time NBA champion, longtime NBA guard, Lindsey Hunter, a guy who has transitioned into the coaching world and is now leading his own program at Division I Mississippi Valley State. Thank you guys very much for obliging me as I sort of explore different sports and different characters. You know, just like in journalism, I feel like it's all about the character and the stories and the people involved more so than the particular sport that they play. I've always said that, you know, if you had somebody who's a, a good and, uh, you know, invested and, and sort of eager reporter and you, you put them on ping pong, they can find good stories because it's all about the people involved. And, and if you can find good people, you can find good stories. And in this case, find a good podcast. So thank you all very much for listening. As always, you can find episodes of this show available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you're listening on an Apple device, I encourage you to leave us a rating, preferably five stars if you like the show. And if you happen to leave a comment, I read all of them. So thank you very much in advance for any of the kind words or feedback you guys are willing to give. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. 